This is Cultivating Convos with the Ohio Department of Agriculture. And it's fun to have everyone else kind of get a little insight into what we do. Farmland forever. Actually, that was the next question I was going to ask you. Shelby, <laughs> let's wrap <laughs> this thing up. <laughs> Welcome to all of our listeners to another episode of Cultivating Convos, Ohio Department of Agriculture's weekly podcast. I'm Shelby Croft. With me is Megan Harshberger. Hello, everyone. Yes, listeners, thanks for coming back. We always uh, appreciate when you tune in to listen to Shelby and I babble on about whatever we feel like babbling on about, I suppose. <laughs> well, this week, though, Megs, we have have, uh, we have a, a, a timely issue and actually talking about something yes. in the history of Ohio and the history mm-hmm. and in our department and what part mm-hmm. we had. We're going to talk about our dangerous wild animal program, but what's inspiring this is we're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of the Zanesville incident, which most people in Ohio yeah. know, know what this is, when 50-plus animals were, were let out in Zanesville, and it created an unbelievable situation for the community, for the state, and then you know, trickled down to our involvement here at ODA. So mm-hmm. um, this happened back in 2011. And Megs, I mean, we were reporters at the time. Um, did you cover yeah. this at all here? I, I didn't. I was actually reporting in Omaha, Nebraska at the time, but I do remember reading stories about, you know, all of this this coming out in the news. I think, Shelby, you were out of state too at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin at the time. So uh, not too, too far away. But, uh, you know, we covered it, obviously, from the national angle, but not, n- not obviously here in Ohio. But it raised, right. Yeah, it raised a lot of questions about the laws and, you know, the animals, mm-hmm. the type of animals people were allowed to keep and, you know, kind of the repercuss- repercussions from all of that. And so that's something that we're going to get to as far as, you know, the laws that have been instituted here. Um, but, you know, let's let's introduce our guest to start with. Yeah, obviously, uh, this had a big impact on the state of Ohio and within ODA. So um, welcoming, let's welcome back um, some guests we've had on before. We've got um, interim state veterinarian Dr. Dennis Summers on with us, and we also have um, OD, an ODA field veterinarian uh, Dr. Melissa Zimmerman on with us. So thank you both um, for joining us again and and lending your your expertise here. Thank you. You know, uh, let's start with, I know Dr. Summers wasn't quite with ODA at the time that this happened, but, but Dr. Zimmerman, I know that you were. Why don't you you tell us from your perspective what happened? Yes, yeah, so at the time in 2011, I had been with the department for a few years, um, actually not currently at that time with the Division of Animal Health. Um, and so... Uh, when when this event occurred, um, I think I, I remember very very distinctly hearing it on the radio that night. I I was still actually uh, working part time in private practice in the evening, and I remember hearing it over the radio at the clinic that I was working in, and um, it just it had a very profound immediate impact. Um, I I very quickly realized that Ohio was going to be thrust into the national spotlight of this debate that had been um, ongoing, kind of waxing and waning over over the years on private ownership of dangerous wild animals and 
Um, I, I think um, in the middle of, of the chaos of the event unfolding, I think it became very clear that it was going to be the, the catalyst for some big changes um, in the state in regards to private ownership as it relates to the animal welfare issues of those animals and um, as we as we saw play out the public safety um, that has to be taken into consideration when those types of animals were being kept in someone's backyard. Yeah, you know, obviously changes were made um, on, on a state level. Dr. Summers, can you talk about, well, A, let's talk about where you were when this happened and then um, as far as law changes have gone and what ODA has done um, since since 2011. Yeah, my my story is not that dissimilar from Dr. Zimmerman's. I was in private practice at the time. I hadn't even decided to to leave private practice to come work for the state. So I was still a field <clears throat> practitioner and and I remember uh, just going through my day. I mean, I don't remember specifically where I was, but I remember the moment I got home, you know, at that night watching the six o'clock news, then all of a sudden, you know, there's all the all these uh, images and and the you know, I-70 shut down and, you know, this this whole story is just kind of unraveling, you know, moment by moment. The, the you know, I, I, I still I can still see it now. It's there's an iconic image out of the out of that Zanesville incident where there's a photograph of all these dead uh, tigers and lions and bears on this rainy, dreary, misty morning, and they're all laid out uh, on the ground and uh, it's cloudy and it just it's just it's a very iconic image of Zanesville. And I just remember very much like Dr. Simran. I mean, we knew that we through our veterinary careers from time to time, we would come across an obscure case of something on the exotic side. And we knew that there was not really much in this way of regulations and exotic pet ownership was uh you know pretty uh, unregulated in fact it was highly unregulated here in ohio and i just remember you know feeling that geez i couldn't imagine what that must be like and you know, you start getting the columbus zoo involved and jack hannah's on tv and the sheriff is there and you know i can look back now at the time it didn't resonate but as my career has gone on and working with the state side i can imagine what kind of pressure and the weight and the gravity of that moment was for those uh, officials that had to make those hard decisions at the time. And, you know, we as veterinarians don't take those decisions lightly. We never do when it comes to to destroying an animal or ending an animal's life. But, you know, for the interest of public safety, you know, it had to be done. And I just remember, you know, that that was a huge, huge I would have to think that would have been a huge weight on their on their chest and their shoulders to make that kind of decision. But yeah, we talked about it at work the next day and, you know, that, you know, just the stories of, you know, what that must have been like in that moment. But yeah, I hadn't I hadn't been with the with the state yet. And I so to kind of go from there, you know, my I came to the department to into the DWA program about two and a half years after the program was 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 born after that law after the dangerous wild animal act was was uh passed by the general assembly i came into the program uh, a little bit later on you know we've been able to watch and look back that uh at that moment as the the pinnacle birth of a of a law that that went swiftly through the general assembly and we were the ones that were tasked to administer it um and you know we we definitely uh, still look back at that moment and still talk about it from time to time. And in you know, Terry Thompson's name and that whole episode does come up with, 
you know, showing that the that the program has been successful um, out of that out of that horrible tragedy. And talking about uh, the Dangerous Wild Animal Act and, and the laws, Dr. Zimmerman, since you were there in the beginning, why don't you talk about how that how the ODA first had a hand in carrying out that law and enforcing it and, and kind of where we are now? Yeah, so the the law actually um, took effect on January 1 of 2014. And so by that time, I had moved in to the Division of Animal Health under our previous state veterinarian, uh, Dr. Forshi. And so he and I worked very closely with the implementation of the law. So some of the pieces of the legislation required anyone that owned a dangerous body animal in the state of Ohio um, or a restricted snake. They were they were required to register those animals with us early on, even before the law took effect. And that was so we could get a sense of where these animals were in the state and what the intention of these owners were. Were they going to get a permit or or come up with another option for their animals? And we did see a lot of owners go other routes than permit. Um, they There were a lot of dangerous wild animals moved out of the state prior to January 1 of 2014. Um, a lot of folks worked with a lot of sanctuaries around the country to get their animals out of the state of Ohio. And then when, when January 1 came along, um, we were required uh, to receive applications for permits and then and then issue those permits accordingly, um, which those permits essentially grandfathered in people that previously owned animals prior to the law taking effect. So you had to own an animal prior to that date um, and you had to get a valid permit with ODA to be able to maintain legal ownership of those animals. As a result of, of being permitted with us, you're required to have an annual, at least an annual inspection that our inspectors do where we come out and we inspect based on regulations regarding care and caging requirements, food, water, veterinary care, uh, making sure that whatever type of uh, dangerous wild animal we're talking about is being housed appropriately. And again, that is based solely on not only the needs and the welfare of the animal, but taking into consideration public safety. So do we have strong enough fencing to hold a bear in? Do we have an adequate dig barrier to prevent uh, a large cat from, from crawling out under? Um, double containment. So you've got the primary enclosure with a secondary enclosure going around the primary enclosure to ensure that someone um, cannot have physical access to that animal. Dr. Summers, do you know, or Dr. Zimmerman, I guess offhand, how many exotic animals currently are registered with the state? I, I'm, I don't have the number in front of me, uh, Megan, as, as far as that are registered. You know, we've got uh, our, our, our turtle permits now are, are down to under 30. I think we're under 30 total permits now. There were more that that we initially had, but as Dr. Zimmerman was alluding to, the the law was designed and essentially that there should be a natural decline over time that as, as these animals 
die from natural causes or the owners decide they don't want to keep their permit up that that they can move those animals to an out-of-state uh, sanctuary um, that those permit numbers will naturally wane off um, and that's what it's designed to do there's there's um there's just going to be a steady slow decline now some of the animals are still relatively young so i mean you know bears for example can have a 25 plus to 30 year or longer lifespan so some of these people may keep these permits for quite a bit of time but um but we we're definitely down to to under 30 total permits um you know we you know the program when it started was very much heavily enforcement based right we as dr simran was alluding to we were much more active in those early couple of years, three to four years with enforcement and uh, trying to work uh, hard to get facilities into compliance and remain in compliance and dealing with those uh, non-compliant facilities. Um, and it just again, as the as it has been addressed and we've administered and taken care of those cases, uh, the program has now become relatively stable in a sense that it's pretty much a permitting based system. Now we we still have some enforcement activities, but it's not like what it was um, three, four or five years ago uh, that 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 that. So it's become a much more of a uh, a stable uh, program that 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 still maintains its capabilities, but it's not nearly as active. Dr. Summers, let's talk about uh, the facility that was built on the ODA campus, uh, the Dangerous Wild Animal Facility. Uh, talk about its history and, you know, the the part it played in the beginning and in what what we do with it now. So, um, again, essentially, when the when the law was being written and the program was being developed early on, again, this would have been before I was here. It was recognized very early on that in order to make this program be effective, um, there had to be some sort of an intermediary stop, like a, a place to take these animals off of a premise before you would move them to whatever that permanent home or that sanctuary may be. To, to ask a lot of our uh, current permitted or exempted facilities, like the zoos here in Ohio is the best example, you know, to ask them to be the ones would be creating um, um, either a hardship or a burden on those zoos to absorb those animals in the short term um, or because of their accreditation status for their uh, species survival plans and what have you, we it was we the collective we decided that maybe we should explore having our own separate facility. Um, and to be truthfully honest, that's been one of the biggest advent advantages for our DWA program is to have that holding facility. Uh, so it was it was uh, approved and there was some monies to set aside to to basically build this uh, 10,000 square foot holding facility here on our on our main campus. Um, it's secure. It's it's got cages. It's got everything that we need to make the program successful. And we have used it. We have used it over and over and over again. Um, and that has made the program be successful. If we didn't have that that facility where we would go out and if we were forced to take an, uh, an enforcement action where we had to physically seize animals and remove them from a property, it's not quite so simple as just taking them off and then transporting them to some other state. Each state has its own sovereign rules on the interstate movement of certain animals and there's permits and there's testing requirements. And so you have to go through the normal regulatory process of contacting the state animal health officials just like the role that 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 we do here 
if animals come into our state, we want to know. So make sure that you're meeting our state rules and vice versa. So by having the holding facility, you can move them off of the, the premise, bring them here for that short amount of time. They would provide veterinary care. We would do physical exams. We, we would we would triage and treat their 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 any medical ailments that they would have, uh, put them on a proper plane of nutrition, be, get them stable. And then and then at that point, work through the permitting system or whatever we needed to to get them re, re, uh, reallocated to that out of state sanctuary. And those were the key steps. And sometimes they were here for a couple of days. Sometimes they were here for a couple of months. It just depended on the animal and the state and all the other factors. But uh, but that facility has just been worth its weight in gold uh, from from the boots on the ground perspective. Dr. Simmer and I both have spent tons and tons of time back there. Um, working with those animals and caring for them. But I can say unequivocally, if we hadn't have had that facility, I don't think the program would have been as successful. Yes, it was expensive. Yes, it was a big undertaking, but it we're thankful that that the taxpayers uh, recognized that and the government recognized that because if we didn't have it, uh, I don't think we would have had a successful program. You know, you just brought up something very interesting. We had uh, Dave Hunt, our chief of enforcement on here, I don't know, a couple months ago, and he was talking about different animals that you all have had back there and he told us the funniest story about a bear who acted like he was in a hot tub um oh, yeah 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 just in dr Simmerman, you can take this one if you want or dr summers but just talk about what it what it takes to care for the certain animals that we get in back there yeah and of course we do have some funny stories but i i don't want that to over the overshadow the the fact that the majority of the animals that we brought into our facility have been suffering from medical conditions. Um, almost all of the reptiles we bring into the building suffer from a condition called metabolic bone disease. And that's typically due to improper diet, um, improper husbandry practices. The majority of the mammals that we've had at our facility have been overweight, which can cause a plethora of um, other conditions in animals, just like it does in humans. Um, and then specifically with the, with the bears, we see a lot of neurotic issues, and those arise from being kept in very strict confinement situations. You know, we we've taken bears out of dog crates that lived their entire lives in dog crates, and you get them out of that crate and you put them into a larger enclosure, and they 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 don't understand that they have that additional space to utilize. They still um, show very um, almost OCD type behaviors where they they just pace the area of the the cage that they were used to living in their entire life and don't go outside that footprint even though they do have a larger enclosure to live in. So we we've had a lot of those issues that we've had to deal with, um, and then in in addition to that, you know, um, parasitic infestations lots of dental disease, broken canines. Um, you know, we've even had uh, a, a large cat back in our building that that had such significant dental disease. It, it had an open wound, an open tract that led from its oral cavity to its nasal cavity, which as you can imagine, caused just chronic ongoing infections that that cat had lived with for who knows how long before 
um, either we or the the sanctuary that we send it to was able to provide it care. And it's um, it, it it is so humbling to see these sanctuaries take on these animals and provide not even not only provide this animal a, a forever home but invest the thousands of dollars that's needed to get these animals health back up to where it should have been long ago well, i would say props to to all of you here at oda for caring for those animals because that just makes me so sad to hear that you know, Dr. Simmerman's right. There's a lot of things that we had to take into account, you know, with the caring. It's, you know, a lot of them come from an, an environment where they were fed normal uh, human food, right? So you have to reacclimate them to get them off of, of uh, you know, bears are a good example. They're, they We saw a lot of bears that were fed ice cream and pizza and donuts and, you know, those kinds of things. So they come in very, uh, very obese. So we try to get them on a more uh, appropriate nutritional plane. Um, but with that too, is all the time and money and effort that we spent internally developing these mental and behavioral stimuli, uh, what we call enrichment. And we would spend a lot of time thinking of creative new ways to stimulate these animals to engage in normal behaviors and, um, you know, ways to try to get them to act like a normal bear or tiger or lion. And that could be everything from, uh, you know, putting perfume on a wooden log that we put into their cage, or uh, we would rub deodorant on the side of their cage, anything to get them to smell and have olfactory, you know, uh, stimulus, stimulation, really aggressive, expensive diets that we would spend uh, time developing and, and feeding them. And then uh, just in, as, as Dave uh, Hunt, as you mentioned there, you know, we would have uh, pools we would put pools in the cages with them with these giant called boomer balls these really rock hard balls to get them to play and just you know try to have uh you know those normal normal behaviors that they would potentially get in 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 a wild environment and it took a lot of time it's a lot of effort it was you having people back there every day cleaning the cages and putting new stuff out and it was very labor intensive when there's animals there um but you do have some you do have you have your your low moments when you know you have to care for the ones that are really sick but you also have the ones that are really curious and um that would lounge like they're in a beach chair in that pool and i mean just almost mimic these uh human-like behaviors especially with the bears they were very um they have a great personality uh but yeah you look back on those with fond memories too knowing that you know they they're off to another sanctuary and uh, living out the rest of their lives peacefully. So these days, what what sort of animals are are we seeing come through more? Like, how has it shifted? So early on, it was you know, to ballpark, we've had roughly two hundred and sixty five, two hundred and seventy animals over the years that have come through our holding facility. Again, their time frames for how long they stay there varies, but. So alligators still remain, they probably always will remain our number one species per se for a couple of different factors. But, you know, early on, a lot of large carnivores, a lot of cats, bears. Um, uh, we had some lions come through um, as well. And then as as those cases that were perhaps more higher profile, they needed to be moved quicker. Um, they had some caging issues, you know, a smaller alligator, 
uh, versus a tiger in a cage, you know, are you trying to figure out like what's the what poses a bigger risk to the public initially on, you know, we would focus on those. And then as we would keep moving forward, uh, work on some of the alligator stuff. And it just naturally it kind of shifted from a lot of large cats, large carnivores early on to now um, it just has this kind of constant stream of alligators that come through and uh, restricted snakes. So that's kind of where the program has shifted now. Alligators, look, I mean, they're not hard to acquire. Yeah, they they come up from the southern U.S. a lot of times. We typically get them as relatively small hatchlings or, you know, maybe less than three feet. They're easy to, to hide inside of a home and you, you don't really know about them, right? We don't know unless somebody tells us. And so it is hard to to uh to have a small program so we rely a lot a lot on interagency cooperation with our other other agencies local law enforcement fire ems um things like that to help help make this program successful so they they've been trained on our program they understand our law they know who to call and um so that's kind of how we we work collaboratively with our other agents to still maintain a viable program um, when we when we don't have uh, the same numbers of staff that we used to, uh, but still maintain the program to be successfully implemented. So, yeah, definitely alligators are the number one species. I'll never get the alligator thing. <laughs> I think I, I covered that a couple times, Shelby. I don't know if you did when you yes. were at yes, Channel I 10. Do. <laughs> I, I don't get it, but okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Dr. Simmerman, can you can you clarify what is permitted? What can you have? What kind of exotic animal can you have a permit for in Ohio? So our law does define what a dangerous wild animal and restricted snake is here in the state of Ohio. Um, so those those are anything along the lines of if you think about um, exotic cats, you know, large exotic cats like lions and tigers, smaller sized exotic cats such as cougars and like bears, of course. Non-human primates, also known as monkeys. There's a few species that are exempt from our law, but generally speaking, um, monkeys need to be permitted with us. And then any constricting snake over 12 feet and essentially any venomous snake needs to be permitted with us. We do have um, a couple different types of, of permits. On the, on the mammal side, we've got the wildlife shelter permit the propagation permit and the rescue facility permit. And then on the snake side, we've got the um, possession permit and propagators permit. So, but most of um, most of the permits, at least on, on the mammal side, um, those, those permits are, are not an option um, for people, again, unless they were in, uh, had ownership of those animals prior to the law taking effect. Thank you, Dr. Simran, for explaining that. <laughs> what, what? No, ma'am. Snakes, no, no, no. <laughs> I saw your face when she brought that up, Megan. I know. I feel the same way. Yeah. I, one other thing I would like to touch on as, as we talk about the law and, um, Dr. Summers and Simmerman, I've heard you both say this, that that we have a good law here in Ohio and one that, you know, others could look at. That That's right. If you were to take, um, if you were to, you know, looking back, um, there were a lot of, um, a lot of, with it, that was a unique law, right? It was new. There were a lot of, I don't want to say growing pains, getting the, getting that, that, that up, lifted up off the floor and getting it up and rolling. But, uh, 
You know, we have had a great team here all with, all along, making sure that DWA program was consistent in the way we administered it. Um, having veterinary oversight is key to a program like that. I mean, it really does need to be administered with lots of veterinarian involvement. And I think that's one key feature of why it came to us is because we have so many veterinarians that are employed here at the Department of Agriculture. Um, so we have, you know, expertise of animal physiology and medicine, and that was that's a key feature. So any state that wants to mimic a program like ours or try to get something up and running, you need to have uh, veterinary oversight with it. You definitely need to consider, um, again, having a holding facility or some some mechanism there to make a program. But, you know, uh, if there are other states that wanted to model it, absolutely. I, you know, we're, we're proud of the program. We're proud of what we do for the department. We're proud of the success of that program. Um, it's a unique program. It's been challenging. You're taking people's property. Um, and so that's not something you take lightly, but uh, you could easily use Ohio's program as a model for other states. Um, I think the law was well written. I think it was, uh, there's subtle nuances that, you know, things that you always looking back, hindsight's 2020, that maybe this should have been tweaked, but all in all, it's 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 been a very successful program. The permits, the way they're written, the way it's designed, has made it self-limiting over time, essentially. Uh, so you know that, um, you know, if the goal is to ultimately uh, protect the pub public of Ohio, you know, if it's if we're protecting the public safety, this law has done a good job with that. Dr. Simmerman, anything else um, you'd like to add before we, we wrap up here? I think we've covered it all. Thank you. And th thank both of you for being on. Yes, thank you. Uh, extremely insightful. And, uh, you know, uh, I have found it's you know since I've been with the department, just a very interesting, interesting program and, and interesting thing to learn about and talk about. So thank, thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. It's been uh, it's been a fun program, and uh, we're happy to have been part of it. Well, again, thank you both uh, for joining us uh, today, and listeners. We hope you enjoyed our topic. We'll uh, we'll see you next week. Goodbye, everyone. Cultivating Convos is created by ODA's communications team. Make sure to hit subscribe to get the latest episodes in your feed and like ODA on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for up-to-date news about agriculture in Ohio.